I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast was created, the Bundjalung and Arakal peoples. I want to return to our top story. Prime Minister Sartre. Scott Morrison has Scott categorically Morrison ruled out intervening to allow a Tamil family to stay in Australia. The Tamil family found asylum seekers. Federal government is seeking to deport the family back to Lawyers are trying to argue the two children born in Australia set out to delve behind the headlines and uncovered a story of a much-loved family in a town fighting for their return. The Tamil Sri Lankan family Priya, Nardes and their two Australian-born daughters Kopika and Tanika settled in the Queensland town of Biloela after seeking asylum in Australia. The Australian Border Force removed the family from their Bilo home in March 2018 after the government failed to renew their visas. $185 million, sources claim, was spent reopening at Christmas Island to detain the family where they have now been held for over a year. To discover more about the family, I caught up with Biloela resident and friend of the family, Margot McNeil, known to Kopka and Tanika as Grandma Margot. So I met Priya and Nardis in my role. Um, I worked as a counsellor and I was asked to support them through them getting their negative responses from the Australian government in regards to allowing them to stay. Nardis worked at the Meatworks. He was an incredibly hard worker. He would have worked three jobs if he could just to be able to look after his family. Family was the most important thing to Nardis. They engaged in all the community activities. They'd go to all the church fates. They'd go to anything that was happening in the town. They'd go shopping. If they saw you in the shopping centres, they'd stop and have a chat. And their greatest joy was their kids. So they'd do everything they could with involving the kids. So, yeah, no, they, they loved it at Biloela. And Biloela loved having them there. Angela Fredericks is a close friend of the family and is leading the campaign to bring the family home to Billow. She described what their life was like in Biloela. Just a simple life, just a simple carefree life. Honestly, the thing they love to do the most, so Priya and Nadez, is feed you. So it's literally whenever we would go and visit them, they would have a feast prepared for us. You know, they'd cook food. When I first met Priya up at the hospital, it was while she was under a great deal of stress, particularly around Nadez's visa and her visa, and they just had little Tanika. So they were this new family of four. She's just such a natural mum. And just watching her basically, you know, didn't matter what we were doing, it always came back to making sure her girls, you know, her girls were being looked after. Priya really mothers me, which I absolutely love because, like, even just talking to her this last week, I've been quite unwell. And even on the phone, you know, everything that they're going through and she's always, are you looking after yourself? Make sure that you're okay. They are honestly family to me now. So, yeah, they're, they're constantly in my thoughts. Then in March 2018, the family were taken from their home in Biloela in the night, put on a plane to Melbourne Detention Centre to face deportation to Sri Lanka country their two Australian-born daughters had never seen. Angela and Margot described the family's removal. We hear about stuff that goes on, on in the world and yet to witness just the harshness that we can treat people is just absolutely shocking. So um, I, re I remember hearing 
screaming about her screams, you know, Priya screams. Um, the, the poor neighbour who was absolutely traumatised by witnessing them being carted away. For me, it was a case of, oh, my God, I know if they send them back, I know that they'll probably die. It was very frightening. And it's something that Bill and Lila's never seen before. They just came in and they swooped and they grabbed their family. And they literally ripped them out of their home. They left the bottles on the table that they were getting ready to feed the baby. You know, just all their clothes, all their wedding memorabilia, which is important to Sri Lankan people, were just destroyed. Everything. They've got nothing. My name is Simone Cameron and um, I grew up in Biloela. Um, I later moved back there and I was a migrant English teacher and I was part of a small group of teachers who actually um, organised and, and set up uh, a migrant English program for, for people seeking asylum like Nadez um, because there was a, a large influx of them coming to Biloela because there was an arrangement between the meatworks in Biloela, the Tees Australian Meatworks, um, to, to give um, people seeking asylum work. So they were, they were sort of bussed up from places like Brisbane to come and start their jobs. So I met Nadez first in the, in the classroom, but I also can remember him early on because he, he had a second job as a trolley, trolley guy at, at the local Woolworths. And then not long after we had those English classes together, I actually moved away from Biloela. So I didn't hear of him again for some years until he and Priya and the girls were actually taken in March 2018. And by that stage, I was actually living down in Melbourne. I guess it was quite lucky that we were down in Melbourne because I was able to then um, go and arrange to visit the family in detention. Simone spoke with me about some of the health issues that the children have faced in detention. Tanika and Kopika had diagnosed vitamin D deficiencies. They didn't have any outside activities at all until I think it was into their second year of detention, actually. So they weren't getting outside enough. So they had these deficiencies from, I guess, mineral deficiencies, but also from lack of sunlight. So... Those deficiencies then caused these really painful dental infections for Tanika as her baby teeth were forming in the gums. They were turned away when they tried to get some treatment for Tanika, who was just a, you know, a wee little toddler um, crying in pain. And they would just say, Here, here's some Panadol, give her some Panadol. So Nadez and Priya just had to keep going back to the, the medical service in the detention centre repeatedly. Now, eventually, after months of this happening, they, they took her to hospital and they were told that she would need to have these baby teeth removed. Margot describes some other challenges the family faced. Priya would wake up in the night with a guard standing over them, looking at them. When she first went into detention, they weren't even allowed to shut the bathroom door. So every time they had a shower or went to the toilet, there was guards watching. After being in detention for a year, the family were put on a plane to be deported to Sri Lanka. Mid-air, they were granted interim injunction over the phone by a judge, meaning the deportation was stopped and the plane was forced to land in Darwin. The family were then transferred to Christmas Island, costing the government as much as $185 million to reopen, sources claim. Tanaka has spent every birthday in detention and was denied a cake and candles delivered by friends for her second birthday, despite Nardes following protocol and completing the required paperwork. 
Kopika was able to celebrate her fifth birthday in detention with her Billow friends on Zoom. Oh, hello Kopika and happy birthday from your Australian uh, mama. We really miss you and we such a such a happy day. And I can't believe that you're five. You're such a big girl now. So Happy birthday, darling. Oh, I love you. I'll talk to you soon. Angela has made the journey to Christmas Island twice to lend her support to Nada, Priya and their two young daughters. Oh, look, they are struggling. Um, Priya and Nadez are both very fatigued. Um, they're very depressed. They're, you know, they still have hope, but there's such a sense of powerlessness. You know, their, their day-to-day routine, their ability to provide and do things for their girls has all been taken away from them. The girls, uh, look, Kopika, especially, she's, she spent this year at school. She's now in prep and she fully understands that what's happening to her family isn't normal. Kopika, she just, she loves make-believe. We would pretend that we were driving places because especially being stuck in detention, they're, they're craving, they're craving adventure. So we pretend that we were driving to the shops, which Kopika is dying to get to some shops. So we'd pretend we were going to the shops and pretend we were buying things. I want to go to Bella Willa and I want to go shopping and I want to go for my dad's car. I don't like God. Margot further describes their life in detention. That it's not just their cultural, but their religious aspects of what they can and can't eat. They've just had to eat ordinary Australian types of food, which was hard for Priya because she has diabetes. So those sorts of foods weren't doing her any good. There was a hole in the floor. Priya actually fell through the floor and badly hurt her leg. Um, that wasn't addressed oh, until she actually went to Perth when she became ill. Um, there's still guards all the time. Yeah, the children have been, Kapika can go to school now. Uh, and that's only been because of a lot of advocating from the lawyers. And Thanika goes to um, playgroup twice a week. I think Kopeka actually plays football after school now. But every morning when they go to school, one parent can take them and they're surrounded by guards. And when I say surrounded, I'm saying you know, four or more guards to take one adult and one child to school. Why, you know, Kopeka gets asked, why do you have guards? You know, it's, it's, it's quite difficult for them to, to explain. Dr. Sarah Mez is a member of the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists Asylum Seeker and Refugee Mental Health Network. She spoke about the potential effects of detention on children such as Kopika and Tarnika. It's actually not possible to effectively treat someone who is traumatised in an environment that is itself traumatising. So if you're talking about children, you know, the Convention on the Rights of the Child says that children, you can sort of summarise it as 
the children have a right to provision of the things they need, like shelter and food and education and so on. They have a right to protection from harm, from abuse, and they have a right to participation in aspects of their lives, to you know, be included in decisions that are made about them. And all three aspects of those rights are undermined by detaining children, either with their families or you know, children who come unaccompanied, because they're not, very often the environment of detention is very impoverished. It's like a form of neglect. Children can't play in the way they can, that they would in another situation. The early years of life have a very big impact across the lifespan. They're very formative years. And for most, there's enormous investment in children, for children in the Australian community in protecting them from harm in the early years and supporting early development and supporting families and also making sure that, you know, parents with mental illness are given the best support they can have so they can be the best parents they can be. And yet somehow all our policies in relation to families, adults and children who seek asylum are the opposite of that. We, they actively, and there's very clear evidence, cause harm to people who are already extremely vulnerable. Angela Fredericks explained how the fast-track immigration system impacted Priya Anadas's claim for refugee status. Their arrival in Australia, which was done by vote, um, meant that they were subjected to the fast-track immigration system that got put in place for boat arrivals. So what this essentially meant was people had one opportunity to submit their reasons for why they were needing protection, why they were needing asylum, and they were given one interview to pretty much get across everything, you know, why, why they needed to be in Australia. And I know for Priya, the way that interview was done was it was Priya on a phone here in Billabilla. There was an interpreter on the phone somewhere else and then the assessor on the phone somewhere else. So, you know, if we just imagine the difficulties of telling a story of war, a story of trauma, and, you know, for Priya, horrific trauma, in that fashion, we can see just how, you know, how ludicrous that system is. However, pretty much from that one assessment, the assessor makes a decision and pretty much for all Tamil Sri Lankans, they are not currently listed on Australia's list of people deserving protection or people requiring protection. And there's a whole heap of complexities around that. However, you know, it does go against the United Nations Amnesty International reports that say that Sri Lankan Tamils do and still require protection in Sri Lanka. So what that ultimately meant is pretty much all Tamils were told, no, you don't require protection. And so ultimately they were all placed on bridging visas. Priya had to renew her visa every month. And pretty much what that led to is the government just deciding one day we're not going to renew the visa again. And that's when they came and took, took the family. So the legal, the legal play that's then happened since then, so um, 
pretty much appealing the decision that Priya and Kofika weren't given protection. That one has unfortunately gone through the whole legal system. And again, all that was happening in the courts was seeing if there was any errors in the way the decision was made. So nowhere is the court hearing their case for asylum, which I think is really important to, to know. The current legal situation that's happening is we're seeking the fact that Tarnika hasn't had her right for protection heard at all. So pretty much the current court, court procedures that are happening is pretty much saying that Tarnika's case hasn't been fairly assessed, hasn't been properly looked at. So that's, that's what's currently being looked at in the courts. I spoke with Greens MP Tamara Smith about her party's view on the Australian asylum seekers settlement policies. We do not support offshore detention of any kind. We do not support detention of asylum seekers. I've spent time in Sweden, Norway, Europe, and I've seen the kinds of compassionate support that is given by those kinds of countries. People are housed in the community because they're welcome. We don't support offshore detentions. We don't support detention at all. Dr Matt Withers of Macquarie University is an expert on Sri Lanka, the country that Priya and Nardes fled from and are potentially facing deportation to. My name is um, Matt Withers. I'm a research fellow at Macquarie University, but previously I did my PhD at the University of Sydney which involved doing some research in Sri Lanka for a period of about a year and a half. And I guess while I was over there, just getting to grips with the entire kind of political scenario that Sri Lanka was in with regards to not just labour migration, but also refugee and asylum seeker migration as well. Dr Withers explained the roots of the Sri Lankan civil war that led to the persecution of Tamils and their need to flee. But really the start of the civil war goes back much further than that in terms of the, the roots of the conflict. And actually, a lot of it has to do with British colonial powers in Sri Lanka before Sri Lanka even became independent, because the British colonial powers have traditionally sort of exercised a, a strategy during colonial occupation where they might privilege one particular ethnic group over another. And in Sri Lanka's case, this meant that the British had given what was seen to be favourable treatment to the Tamil population, who were generally the bureaucrats and the administrators administrators and teachers in Sri Lanka under British occupation, despite only being a small minority of the overall population. Meanwhile, the, the Sinhalese, who are the majority population in Sri Lanka, had really been limited to fairly menial occupations under, under the British. So what really happened then is that after Sri Lanka got its independence, there was this perceived inequality where the majority Sinhalese felt that they were being excluded from running their own country. And this really provoked this the start of what could be referred to as Sinhalese Buddhist ethnic nationalism, which really was a project to try and sort of reinstate Sinhalese power over Sri Lanka. And so in, in 1956, there was a Sinhalese only act which was passed, which basically prohibited Tamil from being spoken both as an official language of government, but also in education institutions. And so that was a way of trying to exclude Tamils from, from having opportunities which they previously had. And so that provoked a response from the Tamils, which resulted in the, the push for Tamil Ilam as a separate part of the country. And so by 1983, 
tensions had risen a lot and then things broke out into into rioting in Colombo and from that point onwards there was a, an on again off again kind of conflict that, that overtook the country and while that had sort of periods of very intense fighting and other periods of less intense fighting, there were enormous casualties on both sides of the war. But particularly, I guess, as the war drew to a close in 2008, 2009, a huge deal of civilian casualties for the Tamil population in the north of the country. And that's really where a lot of the, the sort of allegations of war crimes and civilian killings really came to the fore. As Priya and Nardes's counsellor, Margot heard firsthand of the atrocities Nardes and Priya faced. Nardes was 12 at the time when the, um, the war was going on over there. Now, the Tamil had a really bad reputation of using children for suicide bombing and things like that. Now, when you're a child and, the, and that, not growing up in that, it was a case of whether it was through the Tamil that regime or the Sri Lankan regime, either way, if he didn't do as he was told, he was going to be killed. Nadesh has a few shrapnel wounds still in his body. He was in a training school and which was hit by bombs. He still carries all this trauma with him and he didn't want to be in a war. The only reason he agreed to, to go with the Tamil and fight was because they threatened him with the death of his father, who was too old to join the army. Because the war went on for quite some time, Priya witnessed the burning alive of her fiancé. Um, she witnessed things happening to her mother. She witnessed the Sri Lankan people coming in and just shooting their dogs and things like that. Dr. Withers explained that post-Civil War, Tamil still live in fear. Ordinarily, when you have a large civil war like this, at the end of that war, there's usually something like a peace process or um, a period of reconciliation. There's been no real peace process and there's been no real reconciliation. In fact, in the north of Sri Lanka, where Tamil populations are concentrated, there's still enormous militarization. I asked Dr. Withers if the current Sri Lankan president is likely to improve the situation for Tamils. The current Sri Lankan president, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, is brother to the president who was presiding over Sri Lanka as the civil war was drawn to a close. And he was also the minister for defence. So he actually played a really pivotal role and has now not only been elected as Sri Lanka's president, but just as of a few days ago has been re-elected in a landslide victory, which allows him to sort of consolidate power. And I think that's really quite concerning because they've, the way the two of them and the Rajapaksa family have ruled Sri Lanka has been in this kind of quasi, like almost like a monarchy in a sense. So I'm quite concerned, I guess, looking forward as to, to what kind of situations are gonna develop in Sri Lanka now that they've really consolidated power. Dr. Withers talked about the accusations against the current president. The most damning, really, would be the kinds of atrocities that were committed during the final months of the war, specifically the way that the Sri Lankan army designated safe spaces and no-fire zones in the north of the country, which meant that Tamil civilians flocked into these designated areas, while the Sri Lankan army then started bombarding those same areas with heavy artillery 
and the death count in those final months of civilian and non-civilian Tamils is estimated to be anywhere between 40,000 and 70,000 people. I asked Dr. Withers if he feels the family have a legitimate asylum claim. There was a legitimate threat to their, their lives and livelihoods in coming to Australia, and that on that basis, I, I believe asylum should have been granted into a, a permanent protection visa. But they should be allowed to, to remain in Australia, given the length of time they've already spent in this country, that both their children were born here and have grown up knowing Australia as home, and that they've essentially constructed their a future for themselves and their lives here in Australia. So, I mean, that argument on top of as I said, what I believe is a very legitimate asylum claim makes me feel that there's, there's absolutely no reason why um, either of them or their children should be rejected from asylum in Australia. Margot and Angela describe their fears for the family should they be returned to Sri Lanka. If they go back there, I don't know that they'll survive. It's purely that simple. What I see is, is that, yeah, they'll probably arrest Nardes. Prayer will be put into a detention centre with no way to earn any money, to buy any food, to pay for anything. Her health will deteriorate, therefore the kids will have nobody to look after them. What more can I say? This family, if returned to Sri Lanka, they are, you know, they're facing certain persecution. And so you fight, you fight for your friends, you fight for your family. And at the end of the day, they are no different to you and I, you know, they're mothers, fathers, sons, daughters, you know, they are people, they are people with hearts and we have a way to keep them safe. We have a way to make sure that they have flourishing futures. So that's, that's why ultimately it's just so important to me because it, it actually does come down to life or death and I choose life for these people. Australia and Sri Lanka have joined forces to stop Tamil refugees fleeing to Australia. The Australian government has invested millions in patrol boats for their allies to patrol international waters. I asked interviewees their views on how the government have handled the family's case. I believe that the Australian government finds that politically convenient to, to assume that it's safe for migrants to return home. And that really the, the broader discussion we're talking about here is this long-standing political discourse around boat people arriving in Australian shores and all these different measures which the Australian government has put in place to try and stop these arrivals. You would never, ever, ever let this happen to your friends or your family members. You just wouldn't. There's been so much wrong about the way that this case was handled, but it's never too late to make it right. And, you know, you don't want, you don't want a story like this on the wrong side of your conscience. There's only one right thing to do here, and that's just to do the right thing by a family instead of a crazy political stunt that it's become. Policies in relation to people who've arrived here and sought asylum by boat are extremely cruel in many, many ways. And they breach many, uh, they violate human rights. They hold people in limbo. And they cause, very, very clearly cause a deterioration in people's mental health and well-being. So I would say that it seems as if a lot of these policies are 
more motivated by political considerations than by either practical, financial or humane, humanitarian considerations. And I don't see any reason other than a narcissistic, obnoxious person in government stopping them from being part of the Australian society purely because of his pig-headedness and his dislike for brown people, as he describes them. They've done nothing to deserve this treatment that they're getting. They are good, kind-hearted, hard-working people. They have souls. They have they're the same as you and I. They have feelings the same as you and I. They're just people who, who just all they want is a place to be safe. The law isn't compassionate. The law doesn't say, well, that doesn't make sense because those people are suffering. And the law doesn't say, well, that's costing taxpayers crazy amounts of money. That can't make, that, that's, that's insane. The minister and the prime minister have the power to veto that and to make a, an exception based on compassion. I asked interviewees what can be done to bring Priya, Nardes and their girls home to Billow. Keep doing what you're doing. Uh, get, keep getting louder and um, making as much noise about it as possible. Look, it, it's very difficult, I think, um, in these situations to, to really sort of um, push for, for any sort of hard outcome beyond the small acts which we can all do in terms of contacting local MPs and putting pressure on them to, to make this a political issue and say that the people of Australia do not want them to be deported and do not agree with the way that they've been treated but also to, wherever possible, put support to the, the Home to Biloela campaign and, and share the messages as far and wide as, as we can and say that this is not what we collectively as Australians stand for in the way we want to treat refugees and asylum seekers in this country. Well, I think um, the, the biggest thing is to make the phone calls to politicians and even to request meetings with politicians. I think we know fairly confidently that there's a lot of support for Nadez and Priya remaining in Australia from Labor and the Greens, but we really need the pressure on the LNP MPs and senators just to see that people aren't giving up and that we're going to keep speaking up for this family until the right thing is done. You know what, at the moment, because they're stuck on Christmas Island, I think just following the, the Facebook page and supporting that, but also writing letters to Kopika and Farnika or Priya and Nanas and sending them, you can get the address from the Facebook page, you can ask for it there. Just writing letters of support, they love getting things like that because they're very isolated, they get nothing. They would just love to have that. Keep sharing their story. Um, talk to people about this family, spread, spread what's going on and share the truth. And for those who, you know, if you connect with a tiny part of that story, then write, write to your MP, write to your federal member, write to the immigration ministers, let them know that we are witnessing, that we are observing what's going on and that we don't stand for it. And another really nice, simple thing, I think, as well, is for people to just keep spreading positive energy. You know, keep keep talking about this family like they are Australians, because ultimately they are.